Okay, happy Sabbath. Good to see everybody. I'm glad you all are here uh, on this unexpectedly chilly and uh, white morning, but that's all right. You guys live in Colorado. You are not as startled by all this as I am sometimes. So, uh, a, a glorious day. And uh, just a little update. Uh, last Sabbath, Alicia and I had the distinct privilege of being in uh, Newmarket, Virginia at Shenandoah Valley Academy for our 40th high school reunion, which is amazing because we're still in our 30s, I think. So I don't know how, how we did that. But, um, but it was a great event. We had a wonderful time. We actually did a Friday night message and a Sabbath for church message, and we did them together. And uh, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. And uh, so sometime we'll try to do that here. Am, am I committing too much with that? Maybe. We'll try to do that here sometime. We'll do one together. It's really fun for us because uh, it's, it's relationship building. And uh, we have different process. And it's fun when we finally get it right. It's very good. So, so yeah, you all need to hear Alicia more. So I'm, I'm going to work her into the schedule when she's in town. Unfortunately, she's going to be away again for three Sabbaths. So, so get your hugs in this week. Anyway, all right, we had a great time. And uh, uh, it's good to be back, had a wonderful week, and uh, so, yeah, glad to be here. Glad you all braved the, the snow and cold. I wouldn't have blamed anybody at all if they're like, this is on my computer, right? And you kind of make that call. So wherever you are, I see you, and I don't blame you at all. But I'm glad, uh, glad for everybody that's here, and we can enjoy uh, warmth and fellowship here in this place. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven. We pray for your Holy Spirit now as today we, we start down a road. I'm not sure how long this road will be, but uh, I'm just as curious as I hope everyone else is to see where you're going to take us over these next few Sabbaths. And uh, Lord, I uh, pray that uh, our minds and our hearts will be ready to learn and be open to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. There is a double-edged sword reality to being a people of prophecy. And what I mean by that is, you know, the, the double-edged sword, as the saying goes, it, it cuts both ways. There are things about it that are hugely advantageous, but there are things about it that are dangerous. I want to start today in the book of Isaiah. And if you want to join me, you can just grab one of those Bibles in front of you. Isaiah chapter 61 is where we're going to start today. Isaiah chapter 61, beginning in verse 1. We find these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now I want to pause just right there because if you're, if you're looking at it in your Bible and you see it there, you will see an interesting way in which... Uh, these words are spelled, you'll see that uh, the Spirit of the Lord God, in the first time, uh, Lord is capitalized, and then God is all capital letters. And then you go to the next line, and because the Lord, and that's all capital letters as well. Now, they may be, the last three may be smaller, but they're, they're capitals. What's going on here is this is literally the name of God. This is Yahweh being stated here. And so, so I, I say that so that you can get the larger context for what's going to come later. 
But the Spirit of Yahweh, God, is upon me because Yahweh has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. So this is a, a prophecy that was extremely well known to the people at that time, because everybody knew the prophecies of Isaiah. And, and when, prophecy, when Isaiah gave these prophecies, or this particular prophecy, this was before the destruction of Jerusalem. That would come later on. And these prophecies would take on new meanings as more and more events unfolded. So, so the destruction of Jerusalem, would, would res in the, and then the captivity in Babylon, and then the return to the land would cause you to read this passage, this prophecy, in the context of your experience. And we all do that. We read prophecy in the context of our experience. That's why people in the Middle Ages tended to read prophecy one way. We tend to read it in another way because more things have happened since then. There's more context. There's more events. And we see things within our context. It's impossible for me to read prophecy in a 25th century context. Now, hopefully Jesus comes a long time before that. But, but the point of it being, I'm caught where I am. And it affects my ability to understand God's word sometimes. And so here they are. They're reading it in this context. And as the years go by down towards the time when Jesus will come, this prophecy comes to take on the meaning to the people that God will appoint a new leader. And this new leader will have the spirit of God upon him and he will bring good news to the poor. He will bind up the brokenhearted, liberty for captives, opening of prisons to those who are bound. Now, if you're hearing this as Israel, after the Babylonian captivity, while you're in Roman subjugation, you're hearing it as the class that is oppressed. And the message you're hearing is a message of deliverance from oppression. This is the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. This is the day of vengeance of our God. You have to understand that in their minds, those two words mean the same thing. God's favor and vengeance mean the same thing to them because God is going to favor Israel and punish the Gentiles. It's a singular concept. So this is the year of the Lord's favor, and it's going to bring comfort to those who mourn, those who grieve in Zion, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. When you were mourning, you put ashes on your head. 
He's saying, no, we're going to brush the ashes of mourning off and you're going to wear a crown or, or something like that. The oil of gladness for mourning, a garment of praise instead of sackcloth. You know, you put that on when you mourn. You will become powerful, oaks of righteousness. And then it talks about, you shall rebuild the ancient ruins. And if you had heard that in that time, you would think of the glory of the days of David and the days of Solomon, when the kingdom was powerful. And now it's ruins compared to what it was. They shall raise up the former devastation, repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. And then it goes the next step. Not only will you be raised up, but those Gentiles who have oppressed you will serve you. Strangers will stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. So, so you would have understood this likely in this time as a description of the great reversal that God was going to work through an appointed human leader who would come forward, win a great victory, turn everything on its head, and now the Gentiles who have oppressed you for the last 500 years will serve you. And you can be forgiven for thinking that because it makes sense in your context. This passage is about a reversal, and it's about the year of the Lord's favor. This is, this is kind of a, a, a reference to a concept you'll find in the Law of Moses called the Jubilee. The Jubilee was an event that was to happen every seven years of, every seven sevens. So everything was broken into seven-year spans, and the land was supposed to get a rest every seven years. And after seven of these seven-year periods, or 49 years, came the Jubilee. Well, what was the Jubilee? The Jubilee was God's method to prevent generational poverty. And it was genius. It's pretty much impossible for us to pull off now. But it was a genius plan, and it went like this. Adversity could fall on anyone over a span of years. And as a result, you could fall into debt and into the loss of your property and even into servitude. But it was God's will that his people would never be trapped forever in this. And so he established the Jubilee. You see, when they came into the land, all the tribes got an inheritance and everyone in the tribes, every family group in the tribes got an inheritance. So everyone had land. But you could sell that land, you could lose it, but only for so long. Because after 49 years, the slate got wiped clean, and everybody went back to their inheritance. You see, it prevented the wealth from piling up in one place and, and being stuck over there, and the poverty from being stuck in other places, because every 49 years, we did a do-over. Everybody started over. It was a great system. Israel didn't really do it. Because when you have stuff, you don't like to give it away. But it was a great system. And it would have worked. So that's mentioned here. The year of the Lord's favor. The year when the debts are canceled. The year when, when everybody goes free from the oppression. Okay, now as I say those words, you're in a different context. You can hear those things a little differently. You can start to hear them in, a, in more of a cosmic, universal way. 
But if you had been in Israel, you would likely be caught in a much narrower way of thinking. And you would be looking forward to this day when this prophecy is fulfilled. Israel becomes the great kingdom on earth. The, the Gentile nations serve. That would be your image. Everything lost would be rebuilt. And this was all associated with, with the coming of the Messiah. And so everybody had perceptions of what it would mean when the Messiah came. And those perceptions regarding this restoration became very literal for them. Here's the problem, though. And, and we can fall into this same trap. Perceptions lead to assumptions, right? I perceive reality in a certain way, therefore I draw assumed conclusions based on my perspective. So assumptions lead, uh, perceptions lead to assumptions, and then assumptions lead to detailed expectations. When I make an assumption about something that I think is going to happen, then I inevitably begin to come up with expectations associated with my assumption. Now the irony is, I will get angry about an unmet expectation based on my assumption without actually challenging myself to say, well, did I actually assume correctly here? So many of our arguments are centered in the reality that somewhere we've made a faulty assumption that led to an expectation that was never going to be reality. This can happen to us in our spiritual lives as well. We are not immune to this danger. So we're kicking something off today, and, and, and we'll see how far we go with this. Um, and, and basically what it is, is it's, it's contained in the title today, What Do You Believe About Jesus? And we're going to spend a, a lot of time in the book of Luke for a little while here. And we're going to just take different stories. You see, here's one of the things we do, we tend to do when we read the Gospels. We have the stories that we like that very much align with what we want to think about Jesus. We spend a lot of time with those stories. We love those stories. But there's one or two stories that we don't like so much. So we don't spend as much time on those. But all of that can lead us to perceptions and assumptions and expectations that are not actually true about Jesus. So what do you believe about Jesus? We're going to spend some weeks on this. I'm going to start it today and I'll speak again on this topic next Sabbath. But then something extremely exciting. I, my only disappointment is I won't be here for it. I will be gone May 6th. But on May 6th, Dina King is going to be our speaker. I was very pleased when she agreed to do that and very sorry I had scheduled it on a week I would be gone. So I'm going to do my best to tune in that day and, uh, and, and at least watch it afterward if I'm too tied up when it's going on. But So, so she's going to talk on May 6th and then we will continue this as we go forward for a little while here and and I was talking to Alicia, and, and I'm hoping she'll be able to do one or two of these uh, as well. And we will talk about, as we go forward out of the book of Luke, what do you believe about Jesus? So just a context for today. Oh, by the way, also May 27, 6, 13, 
2027. Yeah, May 27 is a special day. You also want to be here because we're having some baptisms that day. And Pastor Jay is returning to do those baptisms. And he will be our speaker that day. So a lot of big days in May. You don't want to miss anything in May. But uh, May 27, Pastor Jay will be back and speak for us. All right. But today, we're in Luke chapter 4. So you can turn there if you'd like. Luke chapter 4. And now let me give you context. The story we're going to look at takes place just after, at least in the chronology of Luke, the baptism of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness. So, so this is where we are in the story. And we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And we find these words. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now that's kind of an interesting reference there. Because do you remember what we read at the beginning of Isaiah 61? Do you remember the words there? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Luke is setting something up here. And he says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus is just kicking off his ministry. And it is off to a very energetic start. And the expectations surrounding him are growing. But remember what we said. Perceptions lead to assumptions which lead to expectations. And in the earliest days, when things are just getting going, those expectations are not as exposed. The conflict points have not arisen. The places where what they believed about Jesus or believed about the Messiah, let's say it more generally, has not yet come into conflict with what Jesus is. So there is excitement in the early going. Verse 16 and Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. That was not uncommon in synagogues for a visiting rabbi to be asked to do a reading and kind of a, a, a sermon kind of thing and an interpretation on that reading. And so, so on this day, Jesus, the, the now becoming famous rabbi, is in his hometown, and he's asked to read. And at this point, everybody is proud and excited. It's funny how fast things can change. Luke 4, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he went to Isaiah 61, this prophecy that everyone would know well. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now had you been in that room, had you been steeped in, in the tradition of the time, in the perceptions, in the assumptions, and in the expectations, these words would have been exciting to hear. 
Because as you're hearing this, you're hearing Jesus proclaiming, the Spirit is on me. I've come to proclaim liberty to captives in the year of the Lord's favor. Now, now maybe they're not associating it directly with him yet, but to hear these words is triggering things. This was a very bold move on Jesus' part to read this chapter. We go on, verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. One of the fun things about preaching back then, you got to sit down. I don't know about that. but uh, And sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, it was a bold move to read this chapter. But this is even bolder. Today this is fulfilled? How are all of our hopes of earthly deliverance and even supremacy about to become a reality? Is, is Jesus about to lead a revolution? Is he the Messiah? Is that what he's claiming? You can imagine in this moment what must have been going on in their minds as the words of Jesus begin to collide with their perceptions, their assumptions, and their expectations. Things are actually going pretty well at this point. Because so far he hasn't done anything that really cut across what they were expecting. But all this is about to change. Verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now, there's a lot left out here. This story has collapsed. There's a lot of words that Jesus is saying. And as he's going along, at first, they're really happy with him. But he hits a point here where he says, you're going to say to me, physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did in Capernaum, do it here. Come on, magic worker. Let's see you do it in your hometown. Then verse 24, and Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Now we hear this and we think about them and we think about what happened and it's easier for us to feel superior to them. But let's put ourselves back in their context. And, and in fact, let's think about it this way. Let's push their context forward to our day. What if one of our own here in this room that we have known, maybe even known from childhood, were to stand up and claim to be a prophet? Which would be a claim much less than what Jesus is seeming to say here. I think we'd be uncomfortable with that. Why should I think of you as a prophet? I've known you for a long time and you were no prophet. I can make a list of all the reasons you're not one. You see, sometimes there's a problem with the expectations that come with familiarity. 
And I think sometimes when we have created in our mind perceptions, assumptions, and expectations of Jesus associated with a certain familiarity that we are comfortable with, we may have in fact missed a few points along the way. Now I want to jump out of Luke for just a second here because I want to grab a piece of maybe it's this story. It's at least a very similar story from the book of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 13. Now, the reason I say it that way is because in Luke, it's implied that this happens very shortly after Jesus starts his ministry. But if you go to Matthew, we're already into chapter 13. Jesus is quite a ways into his ministry. But there's a lot of overlap in these stories. So I don't know exactly if this is the same account or, or different, but there is, in fact, the usage of the same phrase. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 54, says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. So there's similarity here. He's in the synagogue. He's in Nazareth. They're astonished. And said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Okay, in Luke they say, is not this the son of Joseph? So we have a parable. I'm in a parallel. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, but then Matthew adds some more. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And then Matthew adds this, and they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And then we have this remarkable, remarkable verse at the end here. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So now put that together with what we were reading in Luke. He said, you will say to me, Physician, heal thyself. The things we've heard you did in Capernaum, do them here. But now we have this story in Matthew that says he couldn't do them there because they didn't believe. They didn't believe in him. And so at least in terms of Nazareth, it seems that the ministry of Jesus was what we might call, given our perceptions, assumptions, and expectations, the ministry of Jesus in Nazareth is what we might call not very successful. You didn't do very well there. But this Matthew account leaves out some things that Luke will add. And in fact, this Luke account is about to get quite offensive to those who had this earth-based kingdom of Israel with a messianic king on the throne of the world concept. Jesus is about to say something, and it's about to strike a nerve. So we go back to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 24. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So here we go. Just a little bit ago, they were marveling and really thrilled at his words. Now he has said something, and there's more that he said that we don't have at all. So we don't really have the whole flow here, but we've got a highlight where Jesus keys on the history of Israel and times where Gentiles received a blessing when Jews did not. And we get to the end of this, and it makes them very angry. Now, perhaps we can only speculate to some degree as to exactly why this is, but, but let's go down that road a little bit. And I mean, of course, we fear perceptions and assumptions and expectations. We can lay the same trap, but, but let's try here a little bit. Why did this make them so angry? Well, it's because Jesus specifically chose to relate stories from the history of Israel where the blessing came to the Gentiles and not the Jews. But the Messianic king is supposed to come and defeat the Gentiles, not show them mercy. The hometown boy is supposed to make the hometown great, not some other place. And now all of this brings up a potentially interesting omission. We don't know for sure on Jesus' reading of Psalm 61, I'm sorry, Isaiah 61, exactly how far he read in the scroll. We have what Luke has recorded for us. And assuming Luke has recorded exactly what Jesus read, there is a fascinating omission here. Because if you go to Isaiah 61, verse 2, then you will read, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And if at the time you were in the context of your expectations, the day of favor to us, the day of vengeance to Gentiles. But Jesus does an interesting thing. Luke 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. All of that you would hear as me He's come for me. And then verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor for me. But then he leaves out the vengeance part. He doesn't finish the sentence. Is this a random reporting error? Or was this exactly how he did it? I don't want to make too much of this, but it seems that perhaps Jesus here left out this part about vengeance on the Gentile oppressors because Jesus intended to show mercy to the Gentiles. And I think that maybe this hit home with them perhaps more than we would even notice. He leaves out the vengeance part and then he tells stories from Israel's history where Yahweh is merciful to Gentiles. And it is after this that they get mad. So I don't think I'm pushing it here to say part of the irritation here is Jesus is not mean enough to Gentiles. 
He's not doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's proclaiming something that they're not looking for. He has violated core expectations. It seems like Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. But then he's following it up with, but things aren't going to go the way you expect. I hate it when Jesus says that to me. Apart from this explanation, I have a hard time understanding the rest of this passage because verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It's fascinating how that goes. How that played out. It's not spelled out for us. We do not know exactly from the text. Only that it was not the time for Jesus to give his life. Whether he disappeared and passed through the mist. Or whether he just said, no, it's not going to happen. There's actually a, a pretty interesting telling of this story in the, in the series The Chosen. That many of you have probably seen as Jesus passes through their midst. How exactly this happened, we don't know. But it was an interesting moment. There's so many details missing. But I think there's enough here for us to get the point. When Jesus doesn't live up to the expectations of those who claim to know him best. Right? This is Nazareth. Isn't this Jesus? Isn't this the guy that grew up here? We know his dad. We know his mom. We know his brothers and sisters. We know this guy. When he does not live up to the expectations of those who claim to know him best, those who claim to know him best are often inclined to throw the real Jesus off a cliff in order to hang on to the Jesus they think they know. Or at least the Jesus that would better do what they want. So it is in this context that I ask you again, what do you believe about Jesus? Now, the first obvious point here is, we've made it before, we've got to stay humble. We can't be so locked into our perceptions, assumptions, and expectations that when Jesus doesn't align with the expectation, our impulse is to take him to the edge of the cliff and just push him off. You're not the Jesus I want. No, no, that's on us. That's not on him. Second point. Am I actually willing to accept Jesus for who he is rather than for who my expectations demand he be? And understand, every era has its bias. Every generation has its blind spots. Most of us inherited our expectations, one way or another. Where did you get your expectations regarding Jesus? Did you get them from the church? Maybe from the religious right wing? Or maybe you are getting them from society. Society loves to tell us what Jesus was about. 
They don't know, but they love to tell us anyway. Liberalism. I mean, the thing is, you can, you can find elements of what Jesus was about in any of these, but none of them has it right. All of these are traps. And each of them seek or have sought to hijack the real Jesus for their own cause. It's kind of what the people of Nazareth were doing that day. They're like, yes, Messiah, defeat the Romans. Yeah, I'm not really here to do that. Off the cliff with you. Everybody's trying to hijack the real Jesus for their own cause. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to get ready. And we're going to sing some songs here. But as they're doing that, I want to ask you a couple things. What do you believe about Jesus? Jesus is Savior? Do you believe you need one? Jesus is Lord? Well, that it would imply that you learn from him and do what he says. Jesus is king. We don't really do king. We don't know how that works. Jesus as friend. Okay. But in what way? At one point here, as we get along into this, we're going to need to confront the encounter between Jesus and Peter where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Because out of that confession grows everything else that we need to understand. We're not going to go there next Sabbath. It's going to be a little bit before we get there. But next Sabbath, we're going to focus on a story of where the demons know who Jesus is kind of ironic, right? The bad guys get it. Why do the good guys have so much trouble? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you need to find out who Jesus is? We're going to sing a song. I'm going to sing a song here. And I think, yes, here we go. I'll bring it back. And, and here's the words. It says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Do you need this, Jesus? Is this the one that you want to come to? The, the refrain goes like this, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Is that your experience? I pray that as we go down this road, along this journey, as we challenge what we believe about Jesus, we will come to experience all of this. Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King, Jesus as Friend, all the full implications of all of these things so that we don't just find out about a hundred of the 10,000 charms. 
you know, maybe the hundred that are under the Savior label or whatever, that we get the full picture. Because in Jesus, truly, are the 10,000 charms.